you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea 14. If uh, you've been with us uh, here at Harvest over the last number of uh, weeks in the evenings, you'll know that we've given our attention to a series on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, the big uh, theological term for that is soteriology. And specifically, we've been interested in finding out how does the salvation which Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection, how is that applied to his people? And Pastor Dale uh, has begun this series by considering uh, the doctrine of the union with Christ, how believers are joined by faith to Jesus, and, and we receive uh, the benefits of salvation in Jesus. Uh, and we've also looked at uh, the doctrine of effectual calling and regeneration. That's God's gracious, relentless pursuit of and bringing to life spiritually dead sinners. Well, today we're going to turn our attention to the topic of repentance. And repentance, along with faith, are, are considered the two parts of, of conversion. And when God graciously works in the life of someone who is spiritually dead, bringing them to life again, uh, the inevitable result is that we uh, see and trust the promises of God, uh, but we also repent of our sin. So, uh, tonight, I want to look at uh, this doctrine of repentance more with you because I think there's a, a lot of uh, fuzziness on this issue. And I want to consider uh, uh, what is true repentance? Uh, why is it necessary? And what incentives do we get, or what are some incentives that we get in God's word to repent? So, join me in reading Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands." In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we come to you now, we give you thanks for your word, which is living and abiding, which is able to correct us, to warn us, to heal us, to bind us up. 
And so, Lord, I pray that now as we consider this topic of repentance, this gift which you give to your people by your Spirit, I pray that we would uh, not only uh, come to understand it better, but that we would come to appreciate it and delight in it, and that we would, in fact, be a people characterized by true gospel repentance. So, Lord, grant this prayer now as we come beneath your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after the reign of King Solomon, as God had uh, foretold, the nation of Israel was divided into two parts, with uh, Judah to the south and Israel to the north. And as uh, you likely know, uh, um, Hosea's ministry was to the kingdom of Israel. And Israel uh, was quickly led away after the division of the nation uh, by their wicked kings to chase after uh, other gods and put their trust in other nations instead of the Lord. And Hosea's ministry is a, a powerful depiction of uh, the faithlessness of Israel, God's people, and his ministry is a powerful picture of God, uh, his relentless pursuit of these faithless people. God's call of his people to come back to, to him. His, his warning of, uh, to them of the consequences of their sin. And, and, and that if they turned to him, they would find mercy. The whole book is this sustained appeal, uh, warnings of judgment, uh, invitations to return uh, to, to faithless Israel, to come back to God. And by the time we get to Hosea chapter 13, God says that he has set himself against his people like a mighty predator on account of their sin. God is set against his people in judgment. It's, it's uh, really a, a terrifying chapter if you read it through. Israel is a serial adulteress. She's repeatedly whored herself out to other gods and to other nations. She's repeatedly ignored the warnings and invitations of God to return. And so justifiably in Hosea 13 a terrible sentence of judgment has come down upon sinful Israel. So we might say that if the, the ministry of Hosea were to end on this note of judgment found in Hosea 13, we would understand and the justice of God would be upheld. But praise the Lord, that is not how the ministry or the book of Hosea ends. Though God has time and time again witnessed his, his faithless people rapturously entwined with, with other gods, these are the words that begin the final chapter of Hosea's ministry. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. The Hebrew word here for return is uh, the Old Testament's favorite word for repentance, shuv. In fact, the, the idea of turning or returning is at the very heart of what the Bible means when we're talking about repentance. Repentance most fundamentally involves a turning from something, our sin, and a turning to someone. Specifically, repentance is a turning to God, as we see in verses 1 and 2. As sinners, the direction that we naturally go is away from God. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, our, our natural direction is to uh, uh, flee from God, to run from God, to have our backs turned toward God. Repentance, though, is a turning back 
to God. Sometimes we think of, of repentance, I think, uh, as um, a matter of, of feeling bad about our sin or something that we've done, or, or it's, it's a matter of, of uh, uh, just admitting that we've done wrong or we've sinned to God. But repentance is not repentance unless we turn to God. The prophet doesn't tell Israel, you'll notice, he doesn't tell Israel to stop. The command is to return. If Israel had, had simply stopped worshiping uh, their idols or stopped engaging in, in lewd acts with, with prostitutes or stopped relying on the, the power of Assyria for their security, this would not be repentance. Similarly, if you are uh, a liar, it's not enough simply to stop telling lies. If you were able to successfully stop your mouth and not say anything false, you would still not have turned your, your back or turned back to God. You'd still be running away from God, only you would do it without telling lies as you go. A man can stop his sins, but unless he changes his direction, he's still running straight to hell. Yes, repentance is, a, is a, a seeking to, to stop our sin, uh, to turn from our sin, but it's no less a turning to God. This is the only way, uh, this turning to God, that we can obey the command of our Lord to repent. And just exactly how we are to turn to God is further spelled out by Hosea in verses 2 and 3. Hosea gives the people the words there to bring to the Lord, and here we see that repentance is shaped uh, uh, foundationally by three critical convictions about reality. First, repentance involves a conviction about who I am. It begins with the God-given recognition that I am, in truth, a sinner. This is why Hosea begins by telling the people to ask the Lord to take away all their iniquity or sin. This is, by implication, a, a confession of sin. Genuine repentance proceeds from this conviction that God works in us where we, we see that we are guilty sinners deserving of God's judgment. True repentance doesn't uh, seek to evade the truth of our sin. It owns it. It says, that's who I am. That's my sin. And the Holy Spirit enables us to see that we're terrible sinners. And with those eyes open to, to the terrible reality that we have sinned against our God, we, we cry out, oh God, take away all my iniquity. Take it away. I can't bear to look at it anymore. It's a conviction about who we are, first of all. But secondly, real repentance involves a conviction about our sin. Notice in verse 3 that the people are to not only acknowledge what their sins are, but also what their sins are not. Hosea specifically identifies Israel's sins, and that's a good practice for us to remember, that we are to repent uh, particularly of our sin, but he identifies their sin. He says uh, they've depended upon mighty Assyria for security, not the Lord. They've trusted in, in war horses for their protection, not the Lord. They've worshipped idols, not the Lord. But the people also need to be convicted about what their sin is not. Their sin is not able to deliver or to keep its promises. 
This is clearly brought out in verse 3 by the three negative statements that you see there. Assyria shall not save us. We, won't, we will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to our idols. And this is a, a critical part of repentance. Because if we're not convinced by God's grace that our, our sin is an exercise in futility, then we're not going to truly turn from it. If we think that there's life or joy to be had in, in our idols or in our sin, uh, then we'll go right back to it. So in repentance, we not only need to see that in our sinful rebellion we've, uh, we've failed or sinned against God, but we also need to see that our sin will inevitably fail us. So the reputation that we've uh, made into an idol will not save us. The, the stuff that we've accumulated to give us a sense of security, just like uh, the war horses of Israel, will not deliver us. The, the sinful sex we were chasing will not satisfy us. So when God graciously gives the gift of repentance, he works in us this conviction that the sin that we were holding and we were chasing, it's a sham. Thirdly, real repentance involves a conviction about God. If we're to truly repent, turning from our sin to God, we need to be convinced that God is merciful. If we're to turn from our sin, we need to believe that God will, in fact, receive us if we turn back to him. Otherwise, we might uh, turn from uh, one sin, we might, put, we might put, put it down, so to speak, but we're not going to turn to the Lord, we'll just pick up something else. Right? We need to know that if we turn around, the Lord will be gracious to us. Isn't this what we see in Jesus' story? of uh, the prodigal son. Boys and girls, you remember that story, right? The, the one son goes to his father and, and he, he asks his father for the inheritance early, which was just a slap in the face to his, his dad. And then he goes and he squanders it all on, on foolish living and he's left to work and care for the pigs, uh, longing that he would be able to eat food like the pigs eat. Right? It's, a, it's a terrible uh, a place that he finds himself in. He recognizes uh, he's he's just a mess. And when he comes to his senses, though, he he thinks that perhaps, just perhaps, if he were to go back to his father and plead with him, his father might receive him as as a, a hired servant or something like that. But if the son suspected, even for a moment, that his father was an unforgiving brute of a man... Do you think he would ever risk the shame-ridden journey back? If he thought his, his, fi- his father was a, a, a tyrant, right? it would be better to stay with the pigs. And when he comes to his senses, there's a hope-filled expectation, even though he does not see fully the father's mercy, but he, he, he senses that his father, if he goes back to him, he will receive him, even though we know he receives far more from his father's hand than he ever expected. The point is that repentance not only involves me being uh, convinced in something about myself that I'm a sinner, it not only involves being convinced about what my sin is and and its true nature, but involves being convinced about something in God, that he's merciful. Now, my repentance doesn't make God merciful, but my repentance is possible because I see that he's merciful. 
It's this conviction that the prophet urges the people to take with them to the Lord in the words that he gives them. He tells them to take with them these words, in you, in God, the orphan finds mercy. God is a a help. He's he's merciful to the helpless. So as the people are are to turn back to God, putting aside their their sin and, and their idols, they're to take this promise about who God is and his character and and his mercy, and that is what's to drive them back to the Lord. I suppose you're asking, well, how can I trust that God will show me mercy? Maybe you don't need a lot of convincing that you're a, a, a sinner. Uh, maybe you don't need a lot of convincing that uh, your sin uh, is uh, empty and, and it does not deliver on its promises. But maybe you're wondering, how can I trust that me, if I turn uh, in repentance to the Lord, that, that the Lord will receive me, that he'll be merciful after all I've done? Well, see, this is where we have so much more of a greater advantage than Hosea did or Old Testament Israel did because we can look to this same God and we can look to the full revelation of Scripture and we can see how this God, being rich in mercy, gave his Son to come and to live and to show mercy to weak and wounded sinners and to die for them, and to rise again so that we might be received into his family. We have a, a clearer picture of the merciful character of God and, and how far he will go to receive us back. If that's the, the nature of repentance, a, a turning to God, a turning away from our sin, being convinced of these things, we now need to consider the necessity of repentance. We've said that repentance involves a turning from our sin uh, and, and turning back to God, but, but why is it necessary? Why is, is repentance so important? Well, the Westminster Confession, uh, summarizing the biblical teaching, is helpful here because it says uh, that repentance is of such a necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. But why? Repentance is a necessity to you, Scripture says, To you, it's a necessity to me, it's a necessity for your neighbor, for your kid, uh, for your spouse, for the person sitting beside you in in the pew. But first of all, repentance is a necessity for you. If you're hearing my voice right now, repentance is absolutely necessary for you. Whether you are a Christian or uh, whether you're not, repentance is a necessity. Even Christians are to be practicing regular, lifelong repentance. We see Jesus speaking to the churches in the book of Revelation and and calling them to repent. Why is that? Because we're we're still a sinful people. We're prone to wander. And we need to be regularly repenting. It's a necessity for us. Now... God's work of salvation not only requires us to repent and and he enables us to repent, but salvation is more than just uh, um, God forgiving us of our sins. We need to know that. Salvation is more than just God saying, uh, I'm not going to punish you. We need God's pardon for sin, obviously, but that's not the only thing that salvation consists of. Because if we think that, we've got a star view of, of God's great work of salvation. God's salvation is a salvation from sin. Not just its guilt, but also its deathly presence and and sin's influence. 
You see, sin drives us away from our Creator. It drives us away from God who is truly the, the source of life and of blessing. Let me illustrate this way. Uh, Mount Everest is, uh, as you know, the world's tallest mountain, uh, about uh, 29,000 feet. And the number of people who have uh, climbed Mount Everest officially, I think, is some, somewhere around uh, the neighborhood of 5,000 people, okay? And half the people who try and climb Everest every year fail in their attempt, and several uh, people will die each year trying to, to climb its lofty summit. Why is it so difficult to climb Mount Everest. Of course, there's the weather, uh, there's just the, the treacherous terrain. But one of the greatest obstacles facing climbers is the issue of oxygen. Right? As they climb further and further up the mountain, Everest is so high that the atmosphere is diminished, and without the use of, of uh, supplemental oxygen, oxygen canisters, uh, most people will never reach Everest's peak. In fact, less than 5% of people who climb the mountain uh, have done so without oxygen. When the first pair climbed the, the mountain without oxygen in 1978, uh, there, there were two men, and they were going trekking up the mountain, and, and by the end of their journey, they were forced to communicate just with hand signals because they didn't want to waste any oxygen. And the last 250 feet, uh, they would go 10 feet, and then they would collapse. They would go 10 feet, and then they would collapse, and they basically crawled their way up to the top of the earth. Later, the men said that the feeling of climbing to the top of Everest where the oxygen was so uh, 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 fleeting, uh, the, the sense was that they felt like they were going to burst apart as they moved further and further away from the necessary oxygen and atmosphere their bodies needed to function. And if the mountain was any higher, the men almost uh, assuredly would have died. Well, sin, in a sense, is like climbing up Mount Everest without oxygen canisters. Only rather than moving away from the oxygen uh, that we need to live, we're moving away from God. Not literally, of course, the psalmist says that there's nowhere we can go where we hide from God, but uh, as in our sin, we set our back toward God. We turn from the life-giving fellowship and communion with Him that He offers. Just like the climbers, if we're to continue in this direction long enough, we will die. See, so it's not enough for God just to forgive us our sins. We also need God to, to, to work in us a, a, a change of direction. We need to be turned around from our sin-determined course. And that's why repentance is necessary. God grants repentance to us because repentance is a, a turning away from death to life. God's too gracious to allow us to continue chasing our sins, chasing our idols, uh, and, and continuing uh, in our disobedience so that we would uh, suffocate ourselves to our eternal damnation. And yet in spite of the necessity of repentance, the need to turn back to God, our creator, the source of life, it's something that far too many of us put off for far too long. I think not only just outside the church, but inside the church, generally, there's not a, an, an urgency that we need to repent, and we need to do it now. Right? We think uh, that, that repentance is something we can do later. Perhaps we think that our, our sin is not so big or, or so serious that it requires our immediate attention. But don't be fooled. 
Right? The longer sin uh, is allowed to linger in your heart, the, the harder the heart grows. Better to, to yank uh, sin out while it's still a sapling, a poisonous sapling, but a sapling than to allow it time to set its roots to go down into your heart and, and cause more destruction and more damage and, and make repentance a, 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 a even more difficult work. Putting repentance off uh, doesn't make it any easier. It makes it harder. Don't be taken in by the, the devil's lie that uh, sin can just be repented of later. Would you uh, deal with uh, cancer later? Would you let cancer linger? Right? Who in their right mind would say to their oncologist, uh, you know, uh, doctor, I really appreciate the fact that you have uh, pointed out these spots on, on my liver, uh, but I've got vacation planned next week and um, I just want to go have some fun before I deal with, with this cancer. Right? No, no one would, no one would do that. If you, if you said that to your doctor, he, he would grab you, he would shake you and say, listen, buddy, if you don't do something about this now, uh, you're going to die. Right? The, the, uh, the, you need to treat this now. So why would we let sin linger? Letting its roots go deeper into our heart. When we wouldn't do that with, with cancer, why, why would we put off repentance just like that? Maybe you realize or a reason that you'll have time to repent later. Right now, you need to just concern yourself with the mortgage, the kids, uh, getting into a good school, surviving junior high, whatever it is. And if you've got any time left over, you just want to have some fun. Right? Repentance seems like something really hard and miserable, and I just want to just relax for a little bit first. Right? We assume that repentance is something that's easy and we can just get to it when we have time. But it's quite the opposite. Repentance is the most difficult thing. It's a thing that we can only do as God enables us, as he grants us the ability to turn from our sin and back to him. And why would you put anything so uh, difficult off? Right? Why would you, you put off repentance until the, the day when uh, you are perhaps uh, dying and, and, and you've lost the strength of body? You've lost the clarity of mind? Who's to say that if you put off repentance till that day, when you're old and when you're dying, that you won't be kept from dealing honestly with God by a constant interruption of, of doctors or unrelenting pain or the fog of, of painkillers or, or anything else? How many of you would decide to wait until... Uh, you were uh, very sick to deal with uh, securing your earthly possessions by writing a will up. I suspect very few of you would. Why? Because deep down we know that life's not certain and no one wants to uh, decide to take up the strain of reading through legal documents and other things uh, so important uh, when you're sick and when your strength is going and you're drawing your last breaths. Right? If we wouldn't put off then dealing with uh, securing our earthly affairs, which will just rust and rot, why would we think that we should put off securing our souls, which will last forever? Another reason we put off repentance is because we just assume that we'll have time to repent tomorrow. The great achievements in, in medicine uh, and science have lulled us into a false sense of, of security. 
Even though we, we have access to the, the, the greatest uh, medical care in the history of the world, and, and that's a great thing. Our, our, our lifespans, uh, on average, are increasing. But we can be deceived by this. Right? I, uh, we, we can think, well, uh, it's just easier to deal with, with death and, and eternal things tomorrow. That's, that's tomorrow's worry. Right? It doesn't seem like repentance is the most uh, pressing of concerns. Yet again, this is just sheer foolishness. The Bible tells us that life is fragile and fleeting. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and he is gone, and its place knows it no more. We don't even need scripture to tell us this. Our experience confirms it. How quickly can life be taken away? In Canada, you might have uh, heard recently, just a couple of weeks ago, the country was, was rocked um, when uh, a junior hockey team was, was traveling through uh, Saskatchewan on a bus, and uh, this was a team made up of, of men 18 to, to 21, and uh, so you've got these uh, strapping hockey players as tough as all get out, getting on a bus, going to a game, right? Everything should be, should be fine. And they get on the bus and they're traveling to a, a playoff game and suddenly a semi-truck smashes the bus, killing half the team. The tragedy sh- shook the country to the core because we tell ourselves that a 20-year-old hockey player getting on a bus is fine. They're safe. And that illusion is shattered with the force of a 25-ton semi-truck. How do you know that you'll have tomorrow? How do you know that God will not say of you this very night, as uh, Jesus says, fool, your life is required of you? See, repentance is, is a necessity. We shouldn't expect... Think of that great promise in, in Revelation uh, uh, 21, where, where we hear that promise of God wiping away every tear from the eyes of his people. Well, no one should expect God to wipe the tears from their eyes unless they have first shed the tears of genuine repentance. So don't put off true repent, repentance. So we've seen the nature of repentance. We've seen the need for repentance. But in our passage, we also see four incentives, four reasons for us to repent, and we'll go through these quickly. The first incentive to repent is that our sin demands it. We see this in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord, for the reason given you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Our sin puts us at enmity with God. It brings disaster upon us. It puts us uh, against God in judgment, and so we must repent. Our sin demands it. The second reason we see in our our passage is that the Lord also commands repentance. Repentance is not an optional feature in the Christian life, though some have suggested it. It's not like air conditioning in your van or something like that that you can take or leave as you please. Our passage has uh, five imperative verbs, five verbs of command, and four of those verbs are are, um, Hosea's command to Israel to repent. See in verses 1 to 3, there's a command to return, to repent. There's a command to take the words of repentance to the Lord. There's a command to return again. And there's a command to to say or address words of repentance to the Lord. 
You need to repent because the Lord, the creator and king overall, commands you to do it. To resist repentance, to delay repentance, to reject this command is to be in disobedience to God. We cannot hold on to our sins. We cannot hold on to our idols and be in obedience to the Lord. The third incentive that our passage gives is that uh, the, the tender love of the Lord. Our Lord uh, loves repentance, but our, our Lord's great love for us is a motivation to repentance. Repentance isn't something that makes us love the Lord. I just, it's important that we say that here, that it's somewhat we're manipulating God's love or bringing forth God's love uh, by our work of repentance. But uh, God's love is an incentive to us to repent. Look at, at how the, the command to repent in verse 1 goes again. It doesn't just say, return Israel to the Lord, but it says, return, O Israel, to the Lord. That's not a small O there. There's an emphatic sense in the Hebrew, which is there's a sense of of this yearning in this command. We see see it, uh, this reflected elsewhere in Hosea. Hosea 11, where where we see that uh, um, God says, Oh, Ephraim, how can I hand you over? He says he's warm with compassion and mercy for his people. So the command to, to repent is, is, is we get further incentive by seeing how great God's love is uh, for undeserving sinners, people who have rejected him time and time again, and yet this great love is there. We hear echoes of, of Jesus standing over Jerusalem and, and yearning for them to repent. See also in, in verse uh, 4, He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. uh, This promise that the Lord has been propitiated, he's been appeased. When the people are to turn to the Lord, they will not find him an angry God if they turn in repentance. We might ask, how is, that, how is that possible? How is it possible for the Lord's anger to have uh, been turned from this Israel who's been prostituting themselves after other gods and chasing other nations? Well, we know, think of, of Romans chapter 3 as we again see the, the greatness of the gospel promise that God can truly turn his anger aside. He can be angry with his people no more and still be just because he's given us his son, Jesus, in the gospel, bearing the wrath of God against our sins so that we might receive the favor of God. But finally, the the fourth incentive that our passage gives us to repentance is that the sinner who repents receives the Lord's lavish blessing. If you're stuck in some sin today, whether you're a Christian or not, look at what God promises you if you would repent. He promises to bring refreshing to you, like the morning dew which uh, sets on on arid Israel that brings forth new vigor. He promises life to you, like the lily which blooms and like the abundant growth of the grain. He promises that you'll grow in strength and stability and that your roots will go down like the noble trees of Lebanon. He promises that the one who turns in repentance will be healed by the Lord and, and, and he will possess great beauty. 
The Lord finds great beauty in the person who repents. Some of us are are forced to just sort of muddle through life looking decidedly average, but here we're told that the person who repents is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. Some may carp uh, about why the insistence on repentance, repentance, repentance. Why insist on repentance from the, the teenager who's struggling with the things of life why uh, insist on repentance from the wife who's just trying to uh, keep the house together or to the husband who's just trying to, to, to uh, make ends meet or, 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 or whatever it is? Well, we insist upon repentance because God insists upon repentance, but God insists upon repentance because it's for your everlasting joy and blessing. In repentance, God is not calling you away from, from fun, but he's calling you to him to find joy and to flourish and to be blessed. The path of repentance is a sweet pathway. Let me close with an illustration from J.C. Ryle, a minister in the 1800s. Ryle tells the story of an English minister by the name of Thomas Doolittle. And uh, Doolittle was preaching in his church when a young man walked uh, through the doors of the church just as he was about to start his sermon. And so then Doolittle did something quite out of the ordinary because he could see that the young man was, was wrestling uh, with, with uh, just great angst. He was uh, going through a spiritual struggle. It was evident upon his face. So Doolittle, uh, as the young man sits down, he turns to an older saint sitting in the pews and, and he says, Brother, do you repent of having served God? And the elderly saint got up and uh, he confidently declared to the church, he said, Sir, I have served the Lord from my youth and he has never done me anything but good. Then Doolittle turned to another saint who was uh, sitting in the church and he said, asked him the same question, Do you repent of having served God? And this brother got up and he said, Sir, I was never truly happy until I took up the cross and served the Lord Jesus. Then the man, and then Doolittle turned to the young man and he asked, will you repent? The Lord used the testimony of those saints to, to bring this young man to true repentance. But Ryle adds this comment to the story. He says, we may be quite sure that no, one, no man ever repents of repentance. No man was ever sorry that he served the Lord. No man ever said at the end of his days, I have read my Bible too much. I have thought of God too much. I have prayed too much. I have been too concerned about my soul. Oh no. The people of God would always say, had I my life over again, I would walk far more closely with God than ever I have done. I am sorry that I have not served God better, but I am not sorry that I have served him. See, the way of Christ may have its crosses, Ryle said, but it is a way of pleasantness and a path of peace. So friend, hear the the testimony of these saints and and hear the promises of God's word in this chapter of, of Hosea and know that God, in this great work of salvation, he calls and enables us to repent, not just because he, he commands it, not just because our sin demands it, but because he is loving and he wants your joy and your happiness and everlasting joy and happiness. One that we cannot have without living a life of true repentance. 
He wants to bless us so that we shall never repent of having repented. Not now, and certainly not when we see him face to face. Let's pray. Oh God, we begin by admitting that we are great sinners. We don't just sin generally, Lord, but we sin uh, in particular ways. And you know with greater clarity, Lord, than anyone here what those sins are and how great those offenses are. And Lord, that thought should make us tremble were it not for the cross of Jesus and for his resurrection, which is our assurance that you are indeed merciful. So we thank you, Lord, that you give to your people the gift of gospel repentance, that you turn your people away from sin, which, will, which is empty and which will kill us and which is grievous in your sight, and you, you turn us back to you so that we might experience your great love experience your favor, experience uh, the, the beauty of knowing that your anger has been turned aside at Calvary. Oh Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be a people, a church characterized by true, genuine, deeply felt repentance. Pray, Lord, that that would be something that we are regularly doing together, in private, I pray, Lord, that uh, for each person here that, that we would be marked by our repentance and that not one would go away from your invitation having rejected it, having uh, thrown it off. But I pray that all might come and know your great mercy, the mercy which is in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.